buy from you $100 worth of stuff. And I promise to pay you in 90 days. And I go to you today, I said, you know, I promised to pay you in 90 days $100. What if I pay you cash today? What will you give me as a discount? What's my consideration? Well, the guy on the other side looks at the value. He says, $100 in 90 days? Give me 99. I'll, you know, I'll take 99 today instead of 90, uh, instead of 100 in, a, in, in 90 days. So it's a market-driven thing, just like interest rates. The more savings there are invested, the more interest rates go down. And here, the more spending there is, the more the discount rate shrinks. Because if people are buying hand over fist, the retailer has lots of money sitting in his till, says, oh, give me a small discount and I'll pay you early. But if things are tight, if spending is going down, the propensity to spend is dropping, he's going to look around and say, I don't have that much gold here. You want, you want me to prepay it? I want more discount. Give me, a, give me a better break. Give me a better number. So this varies with the propensity to spend and this with the propensity to save. And the final word, saving and spending are not the flip side of the same coin. People get income, particularly gold, silver income. They have three choices, and only three. Hoard it, you know, stick it under the pillow. Spend it, and some of it they have to spend. They have to buy food, they have to buy fuel, clothes. Or save it, that is, put it into an account or something where it's out for interest, or in effect, put it to work. So one can vary without, you know, in, un, not influenced by their, they're two independent things. So what does all this mean? Well, let's just, uh, I, I get rid of this, okay? A little more room here. There is what Adam Smith called the social circulating capital. And it's kind of like meandering along, sort of like a river in its banks. And the river consists of all these consumer goods and urgent demand. And whatever flows through here is part of this, this bill market. And the banks are fixed goods, fixed capital. Uh, the brewery has some kettles and a roof and some, some other stuff that sits there. And the beer kind of flows through it. The bakery has an oven and, and a counter and whatever, real estate. That's the fixed capital. Same thing with the gas station. You know, you've got your, your tanks, your building, etc. But enormous quantities of capital flow through, and they are, they used to be financed by the real bills or bills of exchange. So let's just review quickly. You got a, a retail bill, paid. You got a commercial bill, paid down the road, but it just is paid, there's nothing else to it. Then you've got these real bills or or circulating bills, bills of exchange, exchange, that circulate. So some things drop out of this stream, they go too slowly, they don't flow. And some of them flow faster. For example, a bill drawn on beer or bread, no-brainer. Everybody's going to drink beer, everybody's going to eat bread, it, it will never stop. Clothing, maybe, but it could also be a bit slower. Uh, cabbages or sauerkraut, I don't know. <laughs> And then you get the specialty stuff. All this drops out the bottom. So as you go up the scale, faster moving goods. Underneath, let's, let's do it this way. You've got this, this is the speed of circulation called velocity. Okay. 
And as th this is this is the social circulating capital, the stream of of bills making payments and clearing payments. These are just fixed bills, and things can drop out and in. But what happens if you go higher up? What if things go faster and faster? If the bills go faster and faster, circulate more often, well, this is where it gets interesting. Every time the bill is uh, consigned to another recipient, the name is written on the back of the bill. I, uh, uh, what was it, Bob the Brewer, consigned this bill to Harry the Hop Supplier, which means when the bill comes due, Harry the Hop Supplier gets paid, not me. I use this to make the payment. Or it goes to the uh, what's the other thing? Barley. Whoever makes the barley goes to him. So there's an entry made on the back of it. Now suppose you hold this this bill. You know, here's your 90 days. All right. And if it never changes hands, nothing's written on the back of it. If it changes hands a couple of times, you know, Harry the hop supplier consigns his payment to who knows the guy who built his tractor or something. And that's added to the back. Now you can see in 90 days, if this bill circulates pretty fast, you're going to have a bunch of names on it. And in fact, you fill up the back of the bill. So whoever accepted it in the first place, which happened to be the pub owner, will have to issue a new bill with a clean back. And this sounds kind of trivial, but it's not. It's not really. It's a hassle. And whose bills circulate the fastest? The ones closest to the gold. And who's closer to the gold than a brewer or, or a bakery? Why? The goldsmith, the gold mine, the gold refinery. They have the gold, that's in their inventory. They actually hold gold. So those bills drawn against those guys will circulate super fast. No question. Everybody accepts them. And this is where the thing starts to kick in. Instead of fraudulent bills, you've got bills that circulate really fast. Now, it's in the historical record, and if you want, I'll give you the link. The Bank of England wrote about this, bearer bills. Bearer bills, it means no names on the back, just whoever holds it, shows up at the pub, will get the money. In principle, of course, you don't have to go to the pub because there are discount houses that do that for you. So suddenly, things change. Instead of the importance of the underlying good, which was the beer or the bread, it's the holder of it. Now, you want to look at it from another point of view, it's become, instead of an income statement item, it becomes a balance sheet item. If they've got gold, done. If they don't have gold, are they going to earn it? Hmm, they're going to earn it by selling dental instruments? Uh, not so sure. Bricks? Nah, not so sure. Milk? Yeah. That is a consumable and it's going to be used up. So you see the shift in emphasis from what's the material underlying it to who holds it, the name. And furthermore, the other thing is calculating the, interest, the uh, discount rate. You know, I, I showed you this little curve here. If your discount is, I don't know, 4%, just a simple number, in, in, uh, or let's say it's 3%. In, in, uh, but, well, let's say it's 1% per 90 days, okay? So that'd be 4% per year. If you keep it for... 90 days, you get the full 1% discount. You earn that much. But if you trade it three times, you know, once every 30 days, you, you get only discount on this period where you're holding it or this period or this period. So your, your earning is cut in one-third. 
And if you, if you exchange the bill every week, now you're only earning discount on this little time period when you hold it. In other words, the quicker it changes hands, the less, the more bother it is for a tiny game. You, you sort of start to ignore the uh, discount rate. You say, with this bill up here, barrel bill, it circulates so fast, I'm not going to bother calculating the discount. I'm just going to, it's going to circulate at face value. So if it's at face value, then the due date is irrelevant. So this is shifting completely out of a real bill to a banknote. A banknote, which is a bearer instrument, redeemable on demand, anytime, by anyone, for gold. Period. Full stop. Whereas the bill had a maturity date, and it had the merchandise attached to it, and so on. So all that stuff is gone. No more merchandise. The goods. The discount. And the due date, or maturity date, or whatever you want to call it. So there's your, there's your banknote. And there's another thing. The banknote comes in round figures. Yes. Whereas a bill could be an odd figure. Absolutely. And it's very hard to pass on. Well, not hard, but uh, yeah, it's cumbersome. I understand. That's, that's the same like in having to recalculate the interest, uh, sorry, the discount. Eh. And of course, originally the banknotes came in large denominations and they were alongside gold and everybody, anybody who had a banknote <coughs> would, as soon as possible, redeem their banknotes for gold for money. This was very clear, but it's, a ref it's called reflux. But anyway, you see the emphasis changed from all this goods-oriented stuff into banknotes. So where does the fraud come in? Where does the fractional reserve come in? What's all the stuff? What's our problem today? Because this is still legitimate. If you've got a banknote, uh, which is a liquid, which is a demand note in effect, you can go to the bank and say, I want my gold. Yes, sir, right there. If the bank has in the vault sufficient gold and in the portfolio instruments sufficiently liquid to pay all that off, not a problem. The problem comes when we start to use, for example, longer term bonds to back the paper. Hoo-hoo, bonds to back. Bonds to your back. That means if anybody wants their cash, their gold, theoretically has to wait for the bond to mature or the bank has to go out and sell the bond in the bond market because it, it's not due. So you get your temporal shift, your times are off. So instead of, and of course this is what happened, and historically you can see this, that, and there were reserve ratios, how much actual liquidity do you need just in case people actually want their gold to pay it off? And this was shrunk and shrunk. And that's where central banks or banks of issue, they should really be called banks of issue because they issue the paper, were invented that if a bank is in trouble, they'll lend them some money or some gold to tide them over offset the demand. But all this does is shift the burden up one level. And if all the banks want gold because all the people want gold, central banks are going to be bankrupt, which is more or less the case today. So what's the next thing we do? Next thing? Oh, we don't make them redeemable. This, this is value. This is money. No? 
Let's be perfectly clear here. A bill is not money. It's a claim against money. It's the entirely, exactly opposite thing of money. You've got a bill, you have to pay it. A commercial bill is not money. It's a claim on money offset into the future. Bill of exchange, a real bill is not money, even though it has a monetary purpose while it's in circulation. It is also a claim against money. A banknote is not money. It's a claim against money that's even more strict than a, than a real bill because it's payable on demand, not just when it matures. There's no maturity date. Right away, in gold, to bear anybody. So, let's not make it redeemable. And then, we have the problem today. Now, I could go on with a lot of stuff. How much time do we have left uh, here? Ten minutes. Ten minutes, okay. And then after that comes the... There's a question period. After, that's before the question period. Before the question period, you still have ten minutes. Okay, so ten minutes. Okay, so what is the real problem today that there is no ultimate extinguisher of debt? Remember, at the very beginning, I defined money that which extinguishes all debt. None of these paper instruments, what, what uh, uh, Morgan said, everything else credit can extinguish debt. You know, fire can't extinguish fire. Doesn't make sense. So a banknote, what we have today, the so-called money, which is borrowed into it. Everybody understand how money is created today? This, this, this fake money? Yes? No? Well, okay. You, you've, got, <coughs> you've got the bank of issue, the Fed or the Bank of England or whatever, and you've got the treasury of that country. So they need some income, they need some revenue, and the taxation has run dry. You can't tax people anymore because you'll have a revolution on your hands. So, okay, well, let's borrow it. Well, from whom? Well, originally, from anybody, people would just buy these bonds, the government bonds. Oh, yeah, this is very solid and it's very secure and it's safe and the government guarantees it. The good faith and credit of Uncle Sam, <coughs> of the U.S. government, is behind it. Fine. But then we're up to a trillion. Uh, do we want to borrow? Do we want to buy more of these things? Well, now the Fed starts to buy them. So when the Fed buys them, how does it do it? It actually prints up the money or pushes the button on the computer, hundred billion dollars, sends it over to Treasury. Treasury writes the, the new bond over to the Fed. All the books balance, right? Liabilities, assets. That's that's fine. That's legitimate. No, well, I don't think so. There's no intent to pay it back. And there's no way to pay it back because there's nothing to extinguish the debt. The only thing that can happen is it collapses because the, the money and the debt is equivalent. It has to be. All the money is borrowed. All the money is borrowed against bonds, bonds issued by the, by the Treasury. Okay? So when, now there's another thing you hear today. We will inflate away the debt or the Fed will inflate away the debt. What does that mean? Well, it means devalue the currency so much that the debt is worthless. That doesn't work. It can't work. Because even if you buy into the quantity theory of money and you say, well, we double the money supply, we'll, it'll be worth half, according to that little equation down here. So our real debt is half. Not true. Not true. Because in order to double your money supply, you must double your debt. Remember, your you're, you're creating bonds with the left hand and creating dollar bills with the right hand, and they must match, or else your, your books don't balance. And even they didn't go that far. Now, mind you, the Chinese did. Maybe a thousand years ago, or certainly many hundreds of years ago, the Chinese had the same problem of, or, or issue with governments, never have enough revenue. 
And the Chinese emperor said, well, we're going to make some chits, paper money. And the emperor's name is on it, says this, paper money is as good as silver, go and spend it. Wow. So, oh, you don't want to spend it? Where's the spearman? The emperor of China had a monopoly of a huge, rich, enormous country and power, military power to do this. So the chits are as good as money. I, the emperor, I would put my name there, done. Well, what happened, of course, is the chits start to lose value immediately. And as they lost value, the emperor lost power. And soon enough, the dynasty came to an end. There was a revolution and a war and what have you. And a new dynasty started. It's, oh, we'll have silver, we'll have silver. And eventually, they issued paper again. They collapsed. But this happened so often in China that uh, the Chinese passed laws against paper money. But again, you know, laws can be changed and rewritten. Uh, when Marco Polo came back from his famous voyage, he brought some chests of Chinese treasures, including paper money. And the king and the pope looked at this paper money and said, what is this? What is this? Oh, this is the work of the devil. We'll, we burn it. Well, they burned it, but four or five hundred years later, we're getting burned by the very same thing, paper money. Now, in Europe, it worked a little differently. There was no emperor. There was no European empire. There were a bunch of little kingdoms. I'm not talking about the Roman Empire. A bunch of little kingdoms, each of whom had power only in his domain. So not one of them could issue, at force of arms, a substitute for money. So they had to borrow it. And whoever had the money had the power. He who has the gold makes the rules. The bankers had money. They lend it out, and uh, they collect their pound of flesh in the form of interest. Now, bear in mind, the real bills don't pay interest. It's the opposite. They get a discount. So no banker benefits from that directly. So they don't want it. And World War I was the time when this thing was shut down, the bill system. And if you doubt any of this, look up the historical record. Don't believe a word I say. Okay, don't believe a word. Just open your mind to looking and checking it out for yourself. Uh, bills of exchange were circulating far before banks came in. There was such a thing as a bank. People were using them on a daily basis, and this is in the historical record. Bearer bills, this is in the record of the, the Bank of England itself. So all this stuff is there to be seen. World trade, and I haven't found the exact number yet. Somewhere it's in the, it's in the record too, but world trade before World War I was not equaled until the 1970s, almost three quarters of a century later, in spite of growth, wealth, and so on, because the multilateral trade uh, funded by real bill circulation, by bill of exchange circulation, was kaput. Governments didn't want this. They wanted to keep control and collect their pound of flesh from every transaction, and the bankers, of course. So that's the, that's the story on our money. And kind of at the end, I say, uh, you know, structural unemployment, constant destructive inflation, constant warfare, and all the other ills of the 20th century will persist as long as the world is on fiat paper instead of gold, as, the long, as long as the world issues sovereign paper debt without limit, as long as the world uses commercial lending to substitute for the bill market, for honesty or trust-based credit, because this is... Another word for it is trust-based credit. You lend it to the gas. You lend. You put your uh, gasoline on consignment because you trust them. They're not going to steal your gasoline. They're going to sell it and pay you for it. So, any questions? Everybody's stunned silence. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm talking. Really, 
I pointed out to you that the word is petrol. Petrol, yes. Not gasoline. Okay, I, I gotta but keep that in mind. I forgive you for that <laughs> mistake. However, I want to point out Please. that if you confuse the rate of interest with the discount rate, I will never forgive no, you. I will never confuse those. Now, you made good on this in the last few minutes, mm -hmm. but earlier on you jumped back and forth between the rate of interest sure. and this country. That's, that's the worst. Okay, you, you, do, you put it into your words, please, because I'm trying to get this out very clearly and it's uh, not so simple to explain in five minutes, ten minutes. So, the discount rate is one thing, and interest rate is another, and they have nothing at all to do with one another. Well, I said that. And in discounting a bill, there is no loan mm -hmm. involved, sure. no lending, no borrowing. Yeah. Okay, because. The source of credit are two. One is saving, and that's where interest rate comes in. Well, there is another spending. No, consumption. 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 Very, very important. And, and this is paradoxical because a lot of people say, well, sure, if you save, you can create credit. But you, if you consume, that's just the opposite. You destroy credit. Not true. Because consumption is another and quite independent source of credit. Very independent. And the two rates the discount rate arises through consumption. The bill is issued and it can be discounted in the bill. It is constantly being discounted in the bill market. And when you lend money or borrow money, there's an interest rate. And both rates vary. But the interesting thing is that the two rates do not have to move in the same direction. They very often move in the opposite direction. Very important <coughs> difference. And even if they move in the same direction, they could do it slowly or rather fast. As a general remark, this is much more nimble, nimble is the word, and this is sluggish, a lot of inertia is involved, 
it takes time for the rate of interest to change, whereas this could change several times during the same day. And the instrument here is the bond and the bond market, whereas here it's the bill and the bill market which is trading them. And as I say, you've got to separate these two things very carefully because if you don't, you end up with all kinds of mistakes. And that's one of the mistakes. <coughs> you, don't, you don't have to be ashamed because Mises made that mistake. He confused the rate of interest with the discount rate. He just said discount rate, discount rate is just a different way of calculating the rate of interest for short term. This is fundamental. There's a chasm. There is a huge canyon between the two. And you've got to master that. You've got to understand. And this is, of course, Adam Smith. who was a, a very great economist. It's not fashionable to give credit to Adam Smith nowadays, which is a shame. Even in this country, Adam Smith was a great Englishman. He was a Scotsman, wasn't he? Well, Scotsman. Ah, no wonder. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. I, I, like I said, I didn't have time to get into all of this, but I like to draw it's a triangular situation. You've got this line here, and there's another line here. And underneath this are present goods. Money, gold, silver, it's here. And these are future goods or promises. All of them. And then it's divided into two again. The bonds, the interest rate market, the bill, the discount rate. So you've got your triangle, your, your three-legged stool that gives you stability. And today, this one is gone. And today, this one is gone. That's all that's left because everything is borrowed. So these two things have run together. Money is now called debt money. Doesn't make sense. And this is, this is in limbo, only obscure, out of the mainstream thing. You know, I, I was, in, I was in, in Madrid, Professor, you know, in Madrid, Spain, and there was a lot of tension there. And you could see street beggars clinking their cups and people sleeping in sleeping bags on the street. Poverty. But guess what? It started to rain. And there were these poor suckers sleeping on the streets. And, and something else happened. Entrepreneurs came running out, umbrellas, senor, umbrellas, buy your umbrellas here. So, wow, where did they come from? Well, these are guys who are in this, like this side here. They have these umbrellas in consignment from the wholesaler. They run out, they sell them, and they make a profit. No overhead, no borrowing, like you said. And the credit is that somebody gives them the umbrella, 
on consignment, go and sell it. What you sell, you sell. What you don't, you bring back, and then you pay. And that was very encouraging, because until this is crushed by the, com the compliance umbrella, by a government umbrella, it still exists. And I could just see, I just wrote an article on this, and you can see the umbrella police coming around. Oh, the, you know, the mainstream television, umbrellas are dangerous. 12 people lost their eyes this year from umbrella impact. And umbrellas are uh, structurally unsound. 24 umbrellas blew away in the wind. We're going to institute regulatory reform. We're going to have a, a laboratory test for your umbrellas. And we're going to have certified umbrella sellers. Forget it. You want an umbrella now? You're never going to have one again. And that's what happens. You know, today everything is regulated to death, to death. Uh, my friend Philip, Philip Barton, he's the president of the Gold Standard Institute. I happen to be the editor in chief, but anyways, and we're we have a connection. That institute is interested in the Gold Standard specifically, and this one is interested in U.S.-Australian economics. Economics as a bigger field. But the point is that his he's a restaurateur, and he says, you know, Rudy. What my biggest problem is with the restaurant, it's so hard to make ends meet. I said, well, taxes. He says, no, 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 taxes we can deal with. It's the compliance, the compliance. So I used to do my books in 15 minutes a day and an hour or two once a month. Now I have to hire a tax expert and a full-time accountant just to comply with the regulations and all that stuff so everything is smothered under the government blanket. And the government lives on borrowing. And when the borrowing stops and money Real money takes its place, all this will change. Yes? What stops the government from... What stops, sorry? Let's say the Fed. What stops the government, the central bank, from just buying everything that's out there, and just running it down? Well, that's what they're doing. What stops them when people wake up and say, no, I'm not selling? But they're going to have to take it at gunpoint. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, sure, as long as you and you and me individually don't want this to happen, nothing's going to happen, but if 200 million people start to wake up and see what's happening, it's all going to change. I mean, there's a guy called Ron Paul out there who says, get rid of the Fed. Oh. But don't forget, a lot of people have a vested interest in the Fed. All those economists that get paid and all the government, uh, what do you call those, lobbyists and all this stuff, it's in their benefit. So it all has to be swept away. Are you referring to the question, what's stopping the Fed from monetizing everything in sight? Yeah. They will. They will, nothing. Well, actually, they, they, they have already... There's already everything that's really collateralizable has been, so now they have to start making stuff up. Like, like these bonds. But in, in theory, there's nothing that stops them from fully monetizing what they want. No, but this can... This will, will, this will go on until it stops. But what cannot go on forever will not. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the question is, when will it stop? So, well, when it stops. Not a moment before. <laughs> you know, we, for years I've been attending these sessions, and what's one of the questions? When do you think this will happen? In the future. In the future, the Sandy has something to say about that, too. That's in lecture eight. Ah, here we go. Somebody else had a question somewhere. Yeah, yes. Still have a question. Um, inequity research, when you're valuing the cash flows, you're cash valuing, valuing the future cash flows, not producing gold money. Producing gold money? Typically, um, the market is assuming a 5% discount rate. 
and the same as the silver. But for, for iron producing copper or iron ore or coal, the discount rate is much higher, say 10%. Well, first of all, it's not a, why is it 5%? It's not a discount. It's, 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 it, here you're talking about interest rate. It's called a discount rate, but it's not a discount as per this. Because, because here, what if you... I mean, this is not easy to get across. That's what a professor was trying That's to prove. Yeah, if you if you if you owe a hundred dollars to the bank and you pay it back immediately, it's a hundred dollars. Yeah. If you wait nine days, it'll be one hundred and three dollars because you pay that interest to the bank. Now, if you hold a bill, you buy it or you acquire it at a discount, you pay ninety-seven, and if you hold it for 90 days, it's worth 100. So its value increases. See what I'm saying? You're holding an instrument that appreciates to maturity, pretty linearly. If you, if you produce, if you, you know, gold is it's difficult because you're, you're actually mining money. If you say discount, I mean, if you put the formula one over the side to the end, through, through, through future cash flows, ultimately, you know, you're, you're devaluating the, 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 you're devaluing the future, you're depreciating the future cash flows. You well, know, first of all, you know, I think when you're talking about cash, you're talking about dollars or paper money. Well, in US dollars, let's say. Well, you see, this is all, this is all distorted by the fiat system. You, you have to think in bold terms. If you, let's just put it very simply. If it costs 10 gold units, to mine and refine 10 gold units, new 10 new gold units, why bother? If it costs 9 gold units in wages and expenses, whatever, to dig out 10 gold units, you do it, or somebody does it. And if it costs 11 gold units to dig out 10, only governments will do it. So what's happening now is that you have you a lot of inflation in, in, the, in the mining stuff well, in the last five, five I'm, years. I'm, but you've also had the price of gold come back, so now the marginal cost of gold is pretty much where the price is. But again, this is all a distorted system. Under a gold stand, there is no inflation. There's, if there's anything, the word deflation is not quite the right word, but it's the only word around. Prices gradually, slowly drift downward. Prices in gold terms because of efficiencies of production, because of new technologies, whatever, and people benefit from this. If all you ever do with your gold or silver coin is hoard it, you, you gain. You hold it for 10 years, it'll be worth more than when you earned it. So you don't have to lend it out, you don't have to gamble, you don't have to speculate, you don't have to do anything. You just hold on to your gold. But today, you try that with paper money and you lose your shirt along with some other parts of your life. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And even if you, and, and with gold, with this fluctuation, really, gold needs to be measured in ounces. A, a known weight and fineness of gold is money. Full stop. The other thing reference to it, and today the US dollar is worth so much gold, and tomorrow it's worth less or more and whatever. And gradually, if you average out these lumps and bumps, you'll see that the US dollar used to be uh, one ounce of gold would get you 32 US dollars back at the turn of the last century, but $22 something, then up to 35 and 44, and around Nixon it was already up around 70, and today it's what, 1,000, uh, how much is it? So the, the same ounce of gold, it's just sitting there, an ounce of gold, today you would need to spend 1,000 some odd paper bucks to get that. So you can't, you gotta translate the other way. You know, until a few years ago, the Bank of International Settlement 
kept their books in gold units, not in any of the currencies. And I personally would not be surprised if the little gnomes in the back room still believe, even though officially they don't. Anyway, I, I think we're out of time. So we're running out of, of time. Um, finally, we're, I, I think I know what we need to clear out here is the financial algebra used to do the calculations is exactly the same for discounts working back in the future and for interest working into the sorry interest working into the future and discounts working back from the future to, to the present value. That that mechanism of financial algebra is being taught under the chapter compound interest. And um, the word discount that you are referring to comes from that chapter, but it is, you know, it's, it's used in, in, in the sense of interest. Um, the word discount here, is, as it is used in this lecture, is, is totally different. Um, okay. But that, um, I think we've... Uh, if you want to buy a $100 flat screen TV, and it's discounted to 90, that's what this discount means. It's ever so simple. You buy a $100 TV for $90 or pounds or whatever. That's what it is. You buy a piece of paper promising you the best promise there is, best promise ever of gold, 100 gold units for 98. Yeah. Hey, it's a no-brainer. You know, there's no saying between cup and lip, there's many a slip. In other words, unexpected things happen. The promise is not kept. But this one, the, 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 the real bill or the bill of exchange, the cup's already there. You just have to tip it. So. It's the next best thing to, to gold. And that's one of the reasons why there is no such thing today, this kind of circulation, because there's no gold. Nobody would uh, exchange a real bill for paper money, for paper currency. They'd be a fool. I mean, at least a bond or something carries some interest. But the paper dollar, the paper euro, depreciates constantly. So why would you do that? Why would you trade a good, solid instrument drawn on consumer demands, you know are going to be sold, 30,000 years of gasoline, yeah, payable in gold, the merchant's neck is on the line, it, it's as good as it gets. But if there's no gold around, forget it. It's, it can't happen. Another okay. way of saying it is the marketability of a bill, commercial bill in the sense of Adam Smith, yes. is way higher than the marketability of the paper money printed by the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve System of the United States, and that can be proved. You can just bombard the market with more commercial bills, it will take it. But bombard the, the foreign exchange market with pound notes or dollar notes and see what happens. Just wait and see. Yeah, and this is innate to the system. If, if you think about it, how much does a gasoline station cost to build? I don't know, 200,000 pounds, 300,000, whatever. But how many dollars or euros or of worth of gasoline flow through there over a year or two or three? Much, much more. And it keeps adding up. So that, that few hundred thousand dollar investment will then guide even millions of dollars worth of, of flow of these urgently needed goods. So the, the, the money to build the gas station is borrowed and paid in interest terms. But the gasoline itself, the money to pay for that is never borrowed. It's commercial credit, uh, trust-based credit, real bills credit, and that. Okay, I'm, I'm going to. Yeah, we'll come I to have, you, sir. Yes. I have one historical question. Um, 
at the end of the First World War and the Versailles Treaty, uh, there was a re an eventual return to the, the gold standard. Yes, it wasn't the full gold standard. Gold bullion standard. It was something slightly gold bullion standard. Yes, and the professor refers to the Versailles Treaty, uh, specifically abolishing the return to real bills. Um, I cannot find any information as to whether that was contained in the Versailles Treaty. No, it's not in there. I've read the so, Versailles Treaty, it's not in there. It's in the so, political other, other political agreements and understandings and backroom dealings. It's not in the Versailles Treaty. It's not in there. But of course, there's lots of, for, for all um, legal documents, there's a pre preparatory work which is not published. Right, so this was the victorious Allied powers that did this behind the scenes in the back room and yeah. basically abolished your bills. Well, they, they put a stop to the bill circulation by shutting down the discount houses and grabbing everything under war measures, and then they never let it go. They never gave it back. It, it's still under debate whether, whether it was deliberate or not. Well, is that controversial? On a bad day, I suggest we, the whole world war we, we, we can we can discuss this, but not now because I have to um, give the floor to our youngest um, faculty member. But um, I'm going to give her a break and you also, but just to go to um, a little sanitary break, and then we'll be back. One minute.